and welcome to another episode of Lily High on Life and today I am welcoming a really special guest all the way from Jerusalem at the moment. Walter Bingham, thank you so much for coming on my show. It's a a, a pleasure and thank you for giving me this opportunity. And you're part of our J-Air team. You have your own show here on J-Air every week. That's right. It's actually the same show that goes out on one of the other stations here in Israel. And it is absolutely fascinating, some of the topics that you cover and um, you do it so articulately and so well. And I must tell our audience that you are almost 98. Well, one of the but, reasons. Uh, sorry. So, I'm still going strong. Tu tu tu, bizahindutnsvonsik. One of the reasons I have to tell our audience this up front is because you don't sound anything like a man in his nineties, and as we proceed with the interviews, you don't act like most men who are um, are in their 90s and that's one of the many reasons I wanted to speak to you. So um, you do this weekly radio show in Israel as well as in Australia and when you came to Israel they told you you were too old and that was about 17 years ago. Yeah, well, that was another station. That was the uh, 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 um, state-controlled station, Kol Israel. And uh, they, when I, excuse me, when I got in touch with them, because the one of their uh, managers who controlled the English program at the time told me they wanted me because they knew I had done radio for oh many years in London, in England. Uh, and uh, when I finally uh, arrived and uh, I had to get in touch with the person who was in charge of European languages, instead of asking the question she should have asked, and that is, what's your experience when I offered to work? Uh, she said, how old are you? <laughs> and I said, I'm not telling you, I want an interview. So I went there, but... Uh, and try to sell myself for about 45 minutes. I must say, I thought they would be happy to mix experience with youth so I could learn the uh, uh, technologies and um, the, the modern things and they could learn the tricks of the trade for me, but that didn't work. Uh, I was just too old and they didn't take me. But then, of course, uh, the, the other station is our national radio, which is our Sheva in in English, uh, for, the, for whom I had worked before from London, uh, they were very happy to have me and said, you can have a show. And that was called Walter's World. And we're it's very... Still running today. Yes, and we're very happy to have you on J-Air here in Melbourne, Australia as well. Yeah, that's the 
same show goes out uh, on JR uh, almost every week. Occasionally I give it a break, but almost every week. <laughs> what do you love about radio? I do, I do one more uh, for Israel News Talk Radio. That's a station that's about five, four, five years old. And I have a weekly show on that uh, as well. But uh, of course, today these shows are podcasts. Uh, and and um, once uh, once when I started, they were live shows where people called in and argued with me. They were, you know, <laughs> argue with Walter. <laughs> but today it's all pre-recorded podcasts, which which is much more difficult because a call-in show is simple. It's the callers who make your show. You just throw out a subject or two. And uh, then you press someone's buttons and they phone in and if uh, and after a while you throw out another couple of subjects and uh, more people phone in. So Walter, easy, but uh, make for a week for um, excuse me making a show for uh, an hour or almost uh, uh, continuous talking as you know that's more difficult. Well, most of my, uh, my shows actually are almost an hour, and most people I have on. Um, are just fascinating so sometimes even an hour is not quite enough but how do you uh, at this stage come up with the different topics for your radio shows each week well uh, thankfully I I have all my faculties and I'm an apolitical animal to begin with so I am uh, hopefully reasonably well informed about the politics in in Israel and in the United States and some other countries so things happen and I talk about them and then there are for instance I go out with my microphone uh, as I did uh, this uh, week to the, for instance, to the Tower of David, who were doing renovations, and I report on that, or I uh, talk to my uh, uh, trusted uh, travel advisor and uh, talk about travel, and uh, any, anything that comes up, uh, I talk about. It's a magazine program. And not only do you do radio, but you are also a journalist. Well, I'm... Uh, I'm I have uh, two Guinness World Records. One is as the oldest working journalist in the world, <laughs> and one is the oldest working radio talk show host in the world. Now, uh, print journalism, yes, I like that too. I write uh, uh, frequently in the Jerusalem Post. The last article happened yesterday on Kristallnacht, of course, which is an important occasion. Yes. And uh, once a month, I am in the Jerusalem Report. That's published twice a month, but once a month I have uh, uh, something in there uh, on, on all kinds of subjects. And so how I, do you motivate... I, I like to... At your age, how do you motivate yourself to keep doing these these things which are daily, it's daily work? Yeah, well, I, I must say that I spend almost the whole 
week on my computer. Sometimes I just leave it and go and sit in my armchair and look at uh, the news on TV and fall asleep for a little <laughs> bit, and then back to my computer. It's uh, a week. It's a week's work to uh, to make a program. Uh, takes me quite a long time because uh, once upon a time in England. And I've been in the radio business now for well, 55 years. Uh, I had uh, researchers, editors, and so on. Uh, today I have to do it all myself. And uh, you go out and uh, record interviews, as you know. Uh, I then edit them. Yes. And that takes a long time. Anyway, you might uh, have an interview for 45 minutes and uh, have to get up. Walter, um, you know, you've had quite an illustrious and long career, but you've also had an illustrious and long life as well. Um, you did many things before you went on the radio and, and started writing in print um, also. Um, what's been the most fun that you've had in your life? The most fun? Yes. Life is fun, you know. I look at uh, I look at life as uh, as it comes and uh, de uh, and deal with it and uh, enjoy it. I enjoy my life. Whatever I do, I enjoy it. And uh, I have one principle, of course, that if you start something like a, a course of of languages or something like that, then don't stop in the middle. Go and do it right to the end. And that. Uh, uh, that's one of my uh, uh, principles that I I try and get to the highest uh, level of whatever I do. And that, of uh, course, I, actually, I, I did that. I have a I had a private pilot's license, mm. uh, and uh, uh, that's built up like building bricks. You know, you can just fly a, a low down in sight of surface, clear of clouds, in nice weather. Then you can get a license to carry passengers, another one to, uh, an additional one to get uh, uh, fly at night and so on. And I had the very highest licenses, which allowed me to fly blind only on instruments. Gosh, uh, how, and, how old uh, were you when you first got your first license? I, I did find 68, about 40. And uh, I, took, uh, I took a very sophisticated single-engine aircraft they had to be sophisticated for, the, for that purpose. I took one from London to Israel on my own and back again. And you and can you just tell us about that first flight over Israel and Jerusalem? Well, I can tell you that uh, it was fascinating to land in what was then called Lut today, Ben Gurion Airport. Uh, and one day I wanted to go down. I couldn't go everywhere because uh, with uh, my uh, foreign aeroplane, foreign license, uh, there were certain restrictions. But I could, for instance, go to Elat, and I decided I will fly down to Elat. But they didn't have the, the fuel in that I needed, the type of petrol that I needed at, uh, at the Lude Airport or Bengal Airport. So I flew to what was then Atawot, which is uh, the Jerusalem airport. 
and uh, refueled. And then I said to the to the controller, "Is it possible for me to do some orbits, some circuits over Jerusalem?" And he said, "Yes." So I, on my way to Elat, before I left for Elat, I did circuits over Jerusalem. <laughs> this was my second most emotional moment in my life. I cried like a baby and tried to steer this aeroplane around and, uh, over Jerusalem. So I saw, <coughs> excuse me, you know you stand on one hill in Jerusalem on one place, you see one aspect and you go somewhere else and, uh, and uh, another hill and because Jerusalem's very hilly mm-hmm. and you see another aspect. Here I was, over Jerusalem, seeing the whole city. Wow. Uh, you know, all my life I prayed to, to Jerusalem. All our prayers are Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And here I was. And uh, that was I'm very low down, I don't know, to, uh, sorry, to, uh, I don't know, to, two, three hundred, two hundred meters, three hundred meters, right? Yes. Then, uh, and then I flew on to Elat <laughs> and it got uh, high up then under military control and then the control then I got near Elat and the controller said do you have Elat in sight and I said affirmative and he said be careful it's the one on the right because you know there are two blobs of light one is Elat and one is Akapa next to it <laughs> and Akapa yes. is in Jordan he warned about it uh, and uh, anyway I uh, eventually got Walter, what was it that motivated you to get a license to start with? Because back in those days, it was not that common. Well, I, uh, I'm crazy. I, I do things that other people uh, <laughs> don't don't do. Even now, in my uh, uh, advanced age, true. And uh, I just wanted. To always wanted to fly. I, I love I, I love flying and uh, then I took this course and built up the licenses to that, that license that I told you about uh, flying blind is the same that the commercial pilots have. Yes. So you, you when you do a test they close the windows and you have to just fly to the well, you know, Lily High on Life was actually created because I also believe that no matter what you do in life, you have Again. to enjoy. Lily High on Life, this radio show, was created because I really believe that you have to have fun in life. You have to do what you enjoy, especially for a job. So you and I are on the same wavelength with that. Uh, you know, I read Absolutely. many. I read many articles about you, and there are many, many articles written about you. None of them said you were crazy, but they did all say that you were always, your whole life, a Zionist, and that's why I love the story about flying over Jerusalem. Yeah, well, yeah, but I, I got Zionism with a mother's milk. Unfortunately, circumstances in my life uh, uh, prevented me from coming earlier. I was actually registered to come to Israel, to come to Palestine, uh, at the uh, age of about 14, uh, in 19, uh, end of 1937-38. But the British, as you know, didn't like us and didn't give us... Uh, didn't give a license so I couldn't come at mm. that time otherwise I'd have been here 
Walter, tell us a little bit about Jerusalem today, living in Jerusalem. What's life like for a Zionist in Israel these days? Uh, you see, there are so many troubles for Jews today, anti-Semitism everywhere in the world. We also in Israel have our problems, as you know, with, uh, with our neighbors and uh, generally. But if you have to live with problems, then I suggest you might as well live with the problems in our own country. <laughs> and that, that's the way I look at it. Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to live anywhere today as a Jew. And so come here. Uh, what's life like in, in Jerusalem, in Israel today? You know, <laughs> when you read the foreign media or you talk to people abroad, they think you get shot on every street corner mm. and you can't come. Uh, I mean, there are big uh, organizations like Ford and Toyota who used to do trips for their senior executives. None of those come now because uh, the insurances won't cover it. They're, they're frightened. People have got the wrong idea about Israel. Israel is a wonderful place. It's quiet. I've never, I, I've never heard a shot here in Jerusalem. Uh, of course, look, everywhere in the world there are areas where you would rather not go to that you would avoid where, where there could be trouble and we've got them here but you just don't go you don't go there but and, walking uh, and it's good to, to live with, without it in uh, stockholm in sweden in malmo there are uh, i'm very well acquainted with sweden and there are no-go areas where even the police doesn't go uh, this is where uh, the new uh, immigrants from the middle east Yes. Have settled. And have areas where you would never, you know, I, I, don't, I won't hang around uh, the, the, um, um, oh, uh, in Jerusalem. I wouldn't hang up Damascus Gate, for instance. Yes. I, I pass by and hang around there because that's not a, a place to be. So, uh, apart from that, it's quite, if you, good. Or the walk uh, in Jerusalem, you wouldn't notice that uh, there were any problems. Yes. And I must tell you, this business about uh, about uh, apartheid that they, that they compare us with uh, the then uh, yes. South Africa. Nonsense. You sit in a tram or in a bus next to the Arabs. You go to the hospitals. You sit in the waiting room on the same bench next to next to our Arab neighbors. You get treated by an Arab nurse and an Arab doctor, who are wonderful. So people don't see that. People only see see the bad things. These are the good things. They do live together. And in, in in my view, there are. Thousands upon thousands in, of Arabs in Jerusalem alone who 
who love to be here, but they can't, uh, they can't say it loud because yes. uh, they may get hurt by their own people. And um, Walter, we, I know that we, also, you know, we live in harmony here with, uh, with our uh, Arab neighbors who are in who live in Jerusalem, for instance. Yes, I've I've been anyway, to Israel and, many. And some of them are even moving to Jewish areas because they are afraid that there could be an arrangement for a Palestinian state, which and their their village could be incorporated in, in that and that's what they don't want so they move to Israeli areas they love to be here I'd, and uh, you know there are a couple of political conversations I'd love to have with you but I'm more interested in you yourself because you really have lived many lifetimes um, you drove an ambulance during the war and you received the highest medals and awards for your bravery uh, during that period when you were in the army could you talk a little bit about what that was like because you were you were in the British Army but you really took it upon yourself and your conduct during that time from what I've read was just exemplary well yeah I, I served uh, four years in the British Army uh, and the first two years <laughs> oh I landed in the water on the beaches of Normandy Mm -hmm. and then fought uh, over the ambulance. I never killed anybody, I only saved lives. And uh, and went through right up into uh, Belgium. And I agitated continually that uh, I speak German. And surely we're going into Germany and you need German speakers. Anybody with some training, and you need a bit of training, uh, can drive an ambulance. But, but don't you need German speakers? And they wouldn't uh, release me because uh, initially because every unit was under strength. They lost a lot of men. <coughs> and then just before a very pivotal battle uh, in uh, over, over a, river, a bridge over the River Rhine in Nijmegen, they actually transferred me uh, uh, to and send me back to London from the battlefield. Can you imagine the contrast? I had a bath for the first time. Wow. Wonderful. And I was, I was trained. Uh, there was an office, secret office, at Oxford Circus above a department store that no longer exists under the roof. And there I was trained as a document specialist and other things. And, uh, and then uh, served in counterintelligence and eventually finished up in Hamburg, I make it short. Uh, I was in Brussels waiting for a job <laughs> and then um, was sent to Hamburg. On the day Hamburg fell, uh, and that was the day the war ended in Europe, <laughs> and um, I worked in Hamburg in uh, doing all kinds of jobs. I, I, I was entitled to do anything I liked. I have uh, uh, permits here to to wear officers in, I was a sergeant, officers insignia, they made civilian clothes for me for my job. My car was a blue open BMW, not a military car. And I did all kinds of work. And, and, but I want to tell you about, and I interviewed a Nazis that were caught, uh, preliminary, 
prelim, preliminary interviews. And the highest Nazi that I interviewed was the Nazi foreign minister Joachim von Ribbentrop. Mm -hmm. He was uh, used to be ambassador in London, then he became the Nazi uh, foreign minister, and he was in charge. He was uh, to oversee that all the Einsatztruppen and all the uh, the uh, the, the um, units that did all the atrocities in their so-called occupied territories, uh, that they did their job. And uh, I, I asked him, uh, can, um, uh, Ribbentrop, can you tell me um, something about the final solution? That was the only term there was at, at that time. And he said, I didn't know anything about that. It was the Führer. Oh my God. And, and, uh, and I was flabbergasted, but as, a, as an intelligence officer, I couldn't do anything. I, I had to stiff up a lip. I had to be British. And uh, though I could have choked him, but, but I, I had to be, I could only ask more questions. Then I said to him, so now you heard about it, of course. Uh, uh, how did you find out? And he said he read it in the newspaper, which is a paper to be published. Well, uh, asked a few more questions and sent him on his way. He was the very first to be hanged after the uh, Nuremberg war crimes trials. Yeah, the word chutzpah, when it comes to that, the way they lied and, and tried to cover up, but it was a horrible time in our lives. I must let people know also that you, you weren't just saving lives as an ambulance driver. You actually performed many acts over and above um, being an ambulance driver and were awarded uh, medals for um, for the bravery that you showed and the people that you saved while uh, during that time in the field as well. All the refugee soldiers, Lily, who were in the army, uh, had a different motive from the normal uh, British soldier. British soldier was in, was in the army because he had to go. He felt <coughs> he felt he had to fight for his country. Now we refugee soldiers didn't have a country to. Certainly not uh, the country of my birth, Germany. Uh, not Britain. Just our motivation was much strong. It was fighting against Nazi. So uh, the things I did was was uh, not so other people did. Yes, I uh, happened to see uh, something I did uh, in the battle and awarded me the military medal. It's not the highest medal, it's a high medal from the king. But uh, but that was our motivation to finish the war, find our relatives and, uh, mm. and to finish off the Nazis. Uh, then, then eventually, much later, the French gave the French gave me what was the highest honor. The f what was your involvement I, I, with the French as well? No, that was. Uh, I'm sorry. What was? Uh, could you just repeat that about the French? And the French, uh, the French gave me that honor only a few years ago. 
So you and were actually I'm invited uh, on the 11th to the residence of the French ambassador. I'm not sure if I can get there uh, because there is the armistice uh, uh, commemorative. Very, very nice that they still uh, remember they, you, that they still honor you and remember you. Oh, yes. Very nice. Then I go as a, uh, with two hats. I'm also a journalist. I'm involved with a lot of uh, uh, the embassies here. But the most important uh, um, occasion, this will be the, the, the 9th of November, mm -hmm. which is, of course... Just in a couple of days. And, uh, yeah. Walter, you... You were also um, one of the children on the kinder transport from Germany to England and were fortunate enough after the war to actually be reunited with your mother. Um, do you remember much about the time that you spent in England and the family you were with? Okay. Now, you asked uh, about the kinder transport. Well, the, that, that term, it was a collective term. Uh, there, there, were, there was input from all kinds of places. Uh, and, and it started, the kinder transport, start, kinder transport started now, the Jewish organizations in Germany and Austria were concerned about the, the children, contacted the charitable organizations in, in England and said, can you do something about our children? Well, it's a long story anyway. They, they, they contacted, them. They contacted the, the, the British government. The British government agreed to take 10,000 Jewish, but there was input from everywhere. Some children went to foster parents, others went to hostels, some went to family. Uh, it was just a collective term and it lasted about eight months, there were different transports. I, I was on the transport just one month before war broke out. But the problem about that was it was unaccompanied children, no parents. So can you imagine it was uh, just before the outbreak of war, everybody knew there would be war and everybody knew that uh, uh, it wouldn't be any better for Jews. And yet the parents, such heroes, sent their children away. Now I was 15 and a half and I knew I was uh, streetwise. <coughs> I was uh, living under the Nazis, so I, I knew why I was going. And there were young children, like four-year-olds who were brought to the train by their parents, the parents outside the children in the train. Mommy, mommy, I love you, what have I done? They thought they'd been punished. The yes. trauma was tremendous. And the parents were great, great heroes. Yeah. And I can tell you, 19, when I 
if all children were actually boarded with families and there were not such great stories. Yeah, some went to some... families, indeed. Uh, yes. Some went, some, uh, look, some went into hostels and rather like to choose a dog in the dog home, uh, people came and chose a child. Yes. <laughs> Actually, that's how it was. Uh, was a very famous uh, family who had two boys who became very famous, uh, uh, um, Attenborough. Don't know if you know. Yes, of course. Yes. Famous naturalist. The Attenborough family took two little, two sisters, two girls. I mean, some went to non-Jewish families like Attenborough. They took two girls, and the and the story is that uh, the parents asked. At that time, uh, look, uh, he said, okay, we take, take two children, but uh, then you'll have to share. They said yes, Richard and David Attenborough. Wow. And the girls eventually found the family in America. Certainly. And then... Yes, so... And did, how did you find your mother after the war? Was it the organizations that were putting people together or...? Through the Red Cross and uh, and also the searches and uh, she got in touch with her sisters who lived in America. She knew where to get in touch, and uh, and that's how we uh, eventually. <laughs> I still have telegrams. You know, those today it's Instagram. Once upon a time, there were telegrams. That, that, uh, that went uh, around. I still have telegrams from uh, from those days where, where information was passed and somebody that they found each other. And so yes, it was. It's just amazing. Without the technology or anything, people were still able to find each other and reconnect. You know, it's children there today. There's a case this week in the newspaper where somebody just found a cousin. Yes. After the war. And they they didn't know. There are still people finding each other today. Thank God. They're old, but they find each other. And then you, uh, so you lived in England for a while and you got married and you gave your mother Nachas. 
yeah, well, I, you see, my mother came together with a whole group. She was uh, in, in labor camps all around the, the East, and, uh, and the group that she was with, they came together. They were picked up uh, in, 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 once they got into Germany. They were in prison. They were, you know, in stone quarries. And then they were picked up by the by uh, Count Volker Bernadotte and the Swedish Red Cross and came to Sweden. She, she, lived, she came, she was safe and t- taken to Sweden. Now, I couldn't, I, at that time, I didn't have much. I couldn't even give her the kind of life that she would have in Sweden with her support group. They were, they were support each other. They knew each other. They were worked together. They went through all the troubles together. And so she lived in Sweden, became a Swedish citizen when it was established that my father was no longer alive. She married another Holocaust survivor and uh, lived to uh, lived to the end of her life in, in Sweden. That was like a second home for me. I used to go there continually. If in you... fact, with my uh, Arab... With my aeroplane, I used to fly there. <laughs> How wonderful. Your life has been, you know, when you talk about the ups and downs of life, you've certainly lived many extremes, extremes of despair, extremes of joy, just lots and lots of extremes. No wonder you don't sound like you're anywhere near ready to finish yet. You've, you, what are you still planning I, now? I have a very, as you can hear, just my radio voice, I must... <laughs> We've lost you for a minute. Uh, you were saying I don't my age. The only time, the only time I realise my age is when I pass a mirror. <laughs> I love that. Good day. I feel like forty, and on a bad day, like fifty. <laughs> Just really wonderful, and it's. I, I go everywhere. Uh, I. Are there still things you'd I like left, to do? Yes, in the house. I, I left the house yesterday at uh, just after nine in the morning and I got back at four. I went to all kinds of places, including the president's residence. when anything is going on there. God bless you, Walter Bingham. Um, you, are there, is there anything that you still have on your list that you'd like to do? I did for my for my 95th birthday. I did a side dive. I uh, jumped out of an aeroplane in tandem, of course. <laughs> jumped out of a plane at 13. That's Israel. just and wonderful. I'm going to do that again. Uh, maybe uh, <coughs> maybe next uh, beginning of next year when it gets warmer again. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Is there anything that you I, I, fear? I don't. Is there anything that you I'm fear? I'm looking for some crazy idea. I'm looking for some other crazy idea. Because I do, I do the things as a... 
and now that other people of my age don't do. I was going to suggest that I should go uh, do a bungee jump, but daughter said no. Bungee jumps is upside down and bumps, <laughs> and uh, and you hang by your feet, and that's a real not uh, advisable for you at your age. So I'm not going to do a bungee jump. Uh, I might go and, and be dragged along in the air. They, 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 the boats go on the water and they drag some parachute along. I might go and hang one of those, perhaps. Well, I absolutely... Something crazy. <laughs> I absolutely look forward to um, to welcoming you to Australia sometime as well. I won't find anything that crazy for you because we'd just be honoured to have you here, and we want to see you safely back to Israel when you come. But I will connect you with the Benea Kiva movement, which is quite strong here in Aust- in Melbourne, Australia, as well. I uh, I have been tra- over three years ago. I came and I was there for a year. I actually at the object and uh, and I met a lot of people and the um, founder of the Robert Project actually uh, comes here. Yes, and, and we meet and yeah. have. Uh, Walter, it's been an absolute pleasure and honour to interview you. You sound like you have far more energy than a lot of the people that I deal with that are half your age in Australia. So um, may you continue bis erhindertens fonsik and beyond. This is very important because in you see, oh, I must tell you, uh, it's now 20 years since the uh, Twin Towers were uh, yes. were, were, were uh, attacked. And that, that in my memory, like yesterday. So what's 20 years when you're my age, 98, another, <laughs> nearly 100, another 20 years, and there's 120, not enough. <laughs> where I govern, where I go to to to, uh, uh, to shul, uh, they say, that's, uh, that is uh, Chabad. They say uh, 180, and I, I accept that, and then I said, when we get there, we'll talk again. <laughs> I love it. Walter, thank you so much, and look forward to meeting you in person, either in Israel or here in Melbourne. Thank you. I'd love that. Thank you very much. Or as I say in Israel, which is much nicer than goodbye. Lehitraot. Lehitraot. Bye.